and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. Thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, last... Uh, well, we just... Uh, I want to thank Susan for being on the show and thank uh, Pat and Steven for yep. the week before that. we got to get all our thanks out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, that, like... That episode we recorded with Susan was so long ago that in the interim, mm-hmm. her apartment caught on fire. Yeah. She's okay. Her fiance is okay. Her cats are okay. Yeah. And she's moved into a new place. Like, you guys just heard that episode a few days ago, because I'll probably put this up before Sunday, since this is a catch-up episode. Anyway. Oh, is it? Yeah. Because we're still a week behind. Oh, that's so right. We're catching yes. up okay. here. That's right. So you guys just heard that episode a few days ago, but that was... A whole different chapter of Susan's life. <laughs> so who knows if she holds the same opinions about this is forty? Um, I can't remember if this is forty. Something we talked about on air, or uh, off I air. believe we did talk about it on air. Okay, so and um, that scene where their where their house catches on fire sure. probably has much deeper meaning for her now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks Susan. Thanks Pat and Stephen. Thanks to all the listeners who have said congrats on on three hundred episode, three hundred yeah. episodes. Thanks for listening for three hundred episodes. Uh, I am grateful for for those congratulations. But how do you like? I don't take them as an insult by any stretch. But it's but I look at them like oh yeah I guess like it, as I've said before like it's a podcast we can't get canceled. Yeah, but we could quit. And we a could lot of, quit. A lot of people do. That is true. But then the I, mean, question, I don't want to pat ourselves on the back. It is there's nothing easier. Um, well, there's almost nothing easier than me coming over here once a week and talking about movies. It's true. Yes, like not the, doing that. It would be easier. Yes. Yeah. But um, but it is there but, is that I'm idea. Just saying a, a lot of podcasts do peter out. Absolutely. And but there there is an argument to be made. I don't agree with it, but there's an argument to be made that like you know spending this much time and spending money and effort and stress putting something together that is not a job maybe the people who quit they maybe they've got it worked out <laughs> that's what i'm saying so um david are you a little under the weather yeah that's what i was going to get to okay uh as far as how i'm doing um finances still not good uh and i'm sick okay so that's how i'm doing all right but well, you, you, know got, what? you got a nice sweater on there i it's a cardigan thank yeah. you I, uh, uh it was a, a christmas gift from my mom mm-hmm. uh i'm a big fan of it I, it's only January 2nd. This is already the second time I've worn it mm-hmm. since I got it for Christmas. So, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, you got yourself a new new haircut. Yeah. I've been trying to figure out what you, like, who you look like. Like, who has your haircut? It's not, you, you always think I'm going to insult you. No, you no, no. Think you're always braced uh, for some sort of insult. Yeah, yeah kind of. Uh, Have you arrived at anything? No. Okay, so you've got, your hair's parted on one side. Yeah. You've got a little sort of comb- uh, you know, it, yeah, I used a comb. Uh, it, yeah, it's your hair is combed. Uh, it's short. Yeah, so you've got a little longer on top and short on the sides mm-hmm. with a nice little sort of very uh, precise comb. Yeah. Then you've got your beard, which I'm just too lazy to shave. Okay, and you and right now you're wearing a flannel plaid shirt. Yes, which by the way is also new. It wasn't technically a gift. I went shop. My uh, Jen and I went shopping with my mom, and she she paid the the, the eight dollars for it. And this <laughs> is the first time I've worn it. So here's what I want to say. I want to say you look like one of the guys in Mumford and Sons, but I don't actually know what any of them look like or what their music sounds like. <laughs> yeah, I know the name. I could not. Pl- I couldn't pick them out of a lineup. So yeah, they could be like a hip hop act for all I know, but. <laughs> The impression that I get is that you look like one of the guys in Mumford and Sons, like because you've got like the 
the the like western sort of or, or southern you know uh uh what's the rugged thing with with the with the flannel and the beard okay but you're also a little uh a little hip up top a little clean cut hip young okay fresh all right i'm glad that you explained that because here's the thing it astounds me like <laughs> you wonder why i wince i've known you 13 years uh-huh i've been trained to wince because how Again, you've explained it, and it's fine now. But uh, how was I to take that I remind you of somebody whose music you don't know and who you've never... Basically, a vibe. I remind you of a vibe. Yeah, a vibe that I've gotten. And and my guess is it's probably not a positive one. Like, if it's a vibe off of something you've never seen, it's probably a negative thing. I I don't have any feelings at all about Mumford & Sons. For a while... I've heard good things, I think. um, I feel like I don't even know anyone who... Has ever talked about them to me? Um, what did you point at me for? Well, there's an episode in there. I, I don't oh, know yeah. anybody that has ever voted with their pocketbook for Mumford and Sons. Yeah, that's true. All right, uh, that's a tease for uh, some Another other episode. episode. Um, but there's a thing. Uh, my girlfriend Natalie and I used to. Um, because there was another band that we just knew the name and the name stuck in our heads. But we didn't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. So we'd use them as a punchline just in our conversations. And that was Lady Antebellum because it's okay. a dumb name. Okay. Um, but then we found out who they were because they were in a series of, I think, Crystal Light commercials. <laughs> have you seen these commercials? No, they I are not. so amazing. Okay. I'll describe two of them. Okay. I, I think there are only two. Right. <clears throat> the first one is their tour bus is broken down or something. They're sitting by the side of the road, their tour bus. It's hot. They're bored. There's no music playing. They're just sitting there. And Lady Antebellum consists of one woman and two men. Okay. And the woman says, hey, boys, I got an idea. And her idea is that they get out these little crystal light packages (laughs) and pour them into their water and drink them. Um, But then what that... So they they drink it and they're like, yeah, that's more like it. And And then they stroll through the park singing their song and handing crystal light packages to picnickers and then they stand up on a picnic table and they're singing one of their songs and everyone's like gathered around doing that really fake like slow nod and smile thing like yes (laughs) and then the other one that is funny maybe funnier but in a way that i just find very bizarre okay so they're playing lady antebellum is playing playing a concert okay and um, it's I th- it's supposed to be a big. The establishing shot is that it's a big stage, right? Mm. But then you cut to it, it looks like they're in a closet, and the like we cut in on them, and they're yeah. just like standing there, and the fans are right there, okay, like right there, and they're singing. And mid song, she looks at a guy who's drinking a Crystal Light. I don't even know if it's Crystal Light. It's something like Crystal Light. Yeah, who's drinking a Crystal Light, and she says, "Hey, let me get a drink of that, okay." <laughs> <laughs> then she takes a drink and then all three of the band members sort of turn into human crystal light bottles where their bodies are clear and full of crystal light <laughs> <laughs> and they continue their song and then it cuts to the wide shot of the amphitheater they're apparently playing in but there's no one there it's like an empty amphitheater I, it's the craziest commercial did david lynch direct these <laughs> <laughs> so lady Antilum can no longer be the like uh, anonymous band with a dumb name joke with me and Nelly because now yeah. they have their own they're funny for a whole different reason now yeah yeah they've 
they've gone beyond you <laughs> yeah so now maybe i'll just reference mumford and sons there as like a band with a silly name that i don't know the thing one about and i don't want to i like i like that it's just a beautiful mystery to me yeah yeah all right and I, i'm assuming it has something to do with the movie mumford oh no question i can only assume yeah jake kasdan's involved i know <laughs> that lawrence kasdan made mumford anyway so <laughs> he's too um, old for that now okay now i've got a couple of stories to tell and you know what maybe i'll oh, that's not the episode we're not done now <laughs> <laughs> well i'm saying we're not getting into the the topic proper um, oh, okay but uh and i'm not sure if i'll tell both stories i'll tell the first one uh because it is uh, christmas specific so um Things went very well on my uh, Christmas uh, vacation. It was very relaxing. I got to watch some movies and read uh, my book and just kind of take it easy. Uh, and one of the things that I got for Christmas was Citizen Kane on Blu-ray. All right. And uh, it's right there. It's very monolithic looking, and it looks awesome. And it's... Uh, oh, that's a big box. Yeah. Good packaging. Um, you know, it's got a little booklet in there and, uh, and three... Uh, it's got the movie, and then it's got uh, the Battle Over Citizen Kane, the little documentary, and then RKO 281. Let me ask you real quick. Okay. How does your wife get movies off the top shelf? Because I'd never realized before how high up that is. Uh, she can do it. It just takes uh, some effort. Um, I will help her, yes. Because I, just doing that just now, my shirt came untucked because I had to reach up so high. <laughs> Tuck my shirt back in. Yeah, it's unfortunate. But uh, So anyway, so my mom got me Citizen Kane, and I'm very happy to have it on Blu-ray. I haven't gotten a chance to pop it in yet. I'm going to assume that it is beautiful. And um, so... I opened it, and then my mom said, is, is that your, still your favorite movie? And I said, you know, it's interesting, oddly enough. It is not. Um, and then she was like, uh, fuck me, I guess. Yeah, yeah. she was <laughs> yeah. like, I guess I can't do anything right. Yeah, no, um, I, said, I said, no, it has been bumped to, uh, to number two. And so, uh, and, she's, and she said, well, what is your favorite movie? And she's like, you know what, let me try to guess. And I was like, ah, my mom's not going to get Nashville. And she's like, who's in it? And I said, ah, uh, uh, everyone kind of, she's like the player. I'm like, what? The player. How did my mom first guess out of the gate off of the hint of everyone's in it. Right. Is same director. So close to the mark. So close. And then I was like, whoa, no, that's no, no, that's same director though. She's like, okay, well, can you tell me who's in it? I was like, Lily Tomlin, Ned Beatty, Nashville. Yes. What's going on here? <laughs> this is not this is not the woman that I mm-hmm. thought I was going home to. <laughs> and I was uh and you know what in that moment, you know, it's I don't mean to say that I like don't respect my mom, but our our tastes have gone different ways when it comes to movies. Sure, sure. But uh in that moment it's just like, oh yeah, my parents did like I did used to like really be able to talk movies with them and I have no doubt that my mom and dad saw Nashville, maybe not at the time, but uh but yeah, and so it, I felt a nice little connection with my mom, and I was quite proud of her. You know, two guesses. First, <laughs> first guess, the player. That's pretty good. I was very excited. It's pretty good. So it was a Christmas miracle, Dave. Well done. Uh, well done, Deborah, right? Yes. She goes by Deborah or Deb? She goes by Deborah. Deborah. So, um, and she wants to touch base. But she wants no okay. question about that. Um, I'm sure we've talked about that on the podcast before. Uh, yes, probably. Okay. Okay. Now the second uh, story I have to tell. I wanted to tell it because um, because we've had guests on. I chose not to tell it, but uh, it's the one of my screening of uh, Les Miserables and just that little uh, oh sure, that little sure. story about the okay. So I went I went to the uh, 
a critic screening of uh, Les Miserables, and uh, there was a lot of interesting things that happened at that screening, not the least of which was that uh, the fire alarm went off at the movie theater where I was, and uh, the entire theater, it was the arc light in Hollywood, had to empty out. And so we were just hanging out outside in the cold for about a half hour, and then we all went back in. But uh, and for, And by the way, the... The fire alarm has a vaguely musical quality to it. It's just like, it has that, that quality of it building something, building to something. And it went off right, right before Master of the House starts. And so it sounds as though crazy old Tom Hooper has added some strange electronic uh, aspect to this. And then then you realize, oh, there, now there's flashing lights. Okay, we got to (laughs) go. And so, um, but no. The strangest thing, and regardless of, of your thoughts on Les Miserables, because I know you and I kind of sort of differ on it. I don't hate it like some people do. I, I just wanted to like it more, and you love it. I do, I do love it. I, I don't know where that, again, I don't know where that puts me with the consensus because I'm so, I, this, you know, internet culture's got me so bugaboo. Um, <laughs> uh, that's a Mr. Show reference, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, uh, but I, I, I really did love Les Miserables. Well, we'll talk more about that. Uh, I was as talking time goes with, with um, Battleship Retention contributor in front of the show, Scott Nye, mm-hmm. about this. And the one thing I do, uh, my screener for Les Miserables mm-hmm. came on two discs. You have to switch it halfway through. Aha. Uh-huh. So there's an intermission. Between One Day More and Can You Hear the People Singing, which is exactly where the intermission should go. Because Scott Nye, who sat in the theater, pointed out yeah. it's insane to go from that number to the next number they're, I agree. they're two huge numbers i agree and I, completely and i have to admit if i were sitting in the theater i would have been might have been bothered by that but I, I, I stopped i went and i microwaved a burrito for myself went back to the movie i had an intermission i had a, a forced intermission myself but at not a place where point. there should yeah. <laughs> not be one but um although kind of i had to i had to go back uh but that's that's neither here nor there anyway so one thing I had heard about the various uh, critic screenings that uh, preceded the one that I went to uh, was that uh, people were applauding. I had heard that, that people uh-huh. were applauding, not merely at the end of the film, but uh, after certain songs. That's annoying. You know what? I get it. I mean, when you and I went and saw The Avengers, uh, there were applause. I mean, hero sh- the big hero shot, there was applause. And right before that, I'm always angry, boom, applause after that as well. But it was critics yeah. and their and their. And, you know, plus one. And so they brought their kids and their kids were just thrilled. And so I kind of liked it. Sometimes I enjoy it. Again, you you and I were talking uh, off mic about going home and being thought and like being thought of as being more Hollywood or whatever now. In other parts of the country, applause during movies is far less common than it is here. Oh, right. Yeah. It is still weird to me unless... And uh, obviously, screenings and stuff, often you might know that someone who made the movie is in attendance. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in that case, you applaud. Sure. The person is there to receive your applause. Mm-hmm. But just applauding into the vo- a void, like, for, who, for one another's benefit, to show the other person next to you that you like the movie, I don't, I don't get it. I refuse, no matter how moved I am, I refuse to applaud during a movie unless I know that someone who made it is there. Yes, I don't do it either, but I understand it. But if is it, it a matter of principle for you? Um, I think it is for me, and I don't know why I've chosen to take a stand on that. I have never expressed myself in that way uh, when it comes to a movie. I'll say that. Um, and so, uh, but I do understand it, this idea of like, you know, when it comes to like, you know, going to see like a, a baseball game or, or almost any performance, anything that we are spectators for, um, 
we will applaud except movies and television and i do think that uh, people are conditioned if they are m- moved in such a way as freaking hulk takes out that giant thing with one punch and bruce banner has finally embraced his hulk nature mm-hmm. and then right after is that awesome hero shot and you've been waiting for the avengers for years mm-hmm. that's a payoff and i could I, see an involuntary is, quality there i understand a a, a woo yeah okay I can that see i that. understand and applause i feel like is too mannered almost like it's it's a polite thing that you do. I guess maybe I just think of applause differently. You know what else people are con- conditioned to applause at that always cracks me up? What's that? Anytime someone speaks in front of a group of, group of people in public, yeah. like, again, speaking of the arc light, they start out with the person coming out and telling you, here's the movie you're going to see, uh, here's how long it is, um, and if you need, if you have any problems with the projection of the sound or have any complaints about, you know, find us in the blue shirt to be outside. Every time at the arc light, people people applaud that. Not everybody, but some but yeah, some people feel the need to do it. And it's, it's really like, weird. It's and like, also, they're just doing their job. It's not a performance at all. Um, and this is a little less common because it's not a theatrical setting. But um, at the end of the uh, um, here's where the exits are on a plane and and stuff like that. I feel like occasionally people will be like, I've gotten that <laughs> once or twice. Uh, and then of it's course, weird when the plane has landed successfully, there's I've, I've gotten that some, some applause. And that I understand that. that yeah. We're all, we're all alive. We're going to make it. Yeah. Um, now here's the thing about the, okay. So we've been, dis- we've really been more than I expected dissecting the nature of movie applause. Uh-huh. So at this, we're at my screening. There are there were probably four times where there was applause uh, during the film. Um, you would ex- you know you come to expect it. There's uh, you know uh, Fontaine's big sure, big number. Sure. There's one day more. There's do you hear the people singing? Can you hear the people singing? Pardon me. Um, I wouldn't have called him. Uh, I don't know which one. And and I think there was uh, I think at the end of Master of the House. Um, well, there's also, and after the um, film itself. What's the one? What's the Eponine song? Th- that's that's one day more. No, not one no, anymore. I'm sorry. That's uh, that's on my own. On my own. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. okay. Uh, so yes, the, and that one as well. So, so there was applause after. I, so there were probably about four applause breaks there, um, and I noticed early on that it was the same two people starting the applaud. Uh, the applause. Uh-huh. It always started with the same two people. Uh-huh. There were the people right in front of me, and that's how I happened to notice that these two people started clapping, and other people did after. Then, fire alarm goes off. Okay, so there's probably been one little applause break there. Oh, yeah, that's right, for, for uh, Fontaine. Sure. So as I settle down, because I sit in pretty much the same spot, theater now much more empty, because a lot of people are like, screw it, I'm going home. Uh-huh. Um, you were, I mean, this wasn't like a 10-minute thing. You were outside for a about while. About a half hour, yeah. Half and hour. so people probably thought it's not going to... you texting me. You know where I was? Where were you? I was mere blocks away, about to see Iris, the Cirque du Soleil show. Oh, yes, which I've seen. Yeah. Did you like it? Mostly. Mostly, right? Yeah. yeah. But when you like it, it's, it's amazing. I, I like the, the gangsters on trampolines. Damn right. I've seen three uh, Cirque du Soleil shows. In every one of them, my favorite part involves trampolines. Well, yeah. Uh, apparently, that's just my, that's, that's my, that's my soft spot. That's what, well, that's you what know, it, get, really gets, it really gets the acceleration going. If these people collide, Ooh. people are going to really get hurt. Anyway, so um, <laughs> I, we really had a grandparent's quality. That it's like, people could really get hurt doing this thing. <laughs> so anyway, 
So we all gather back in, and I sit in the same spot that I was before, because that's I, I got in really early, and that's where I chose to sit. And um, the same people sit in front of me. And as everyone else is filtering in, because I was one of the first one back in the theater, first ones back in the theater, and then these people shortly after. And I, I heard, based on their conversation, they were studio execs. Mm-hmm. They worked for whatever I don't recall what studio put out Les Mis Universal Universal and so they and they clearly knew the movie this was not their first time seeing it mm-hmm. and they were just really excited to be a part of it because um, I, I thought it was that but no they seemed to based on how f- their familiarity and talking about the different numbers and that sort of thing they really seemed to know the movie um and uh, and so. Like everybody gets settled back in, and then and sure enough, every time there was applause, it started with the two studio execs in front of me. Now you said like, execs. They work for the studio. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's a lot were, of people who work for studios. Fair enough. Who and aren't what, execs? They they did seem. Here's the thing. They seem to be partially in control of the screening. Oh, okay. Like they said, like you know, we like. The, this woman was talking to the with the she's like oh, I was just talking with the theater manager and that sort of thing. Um, hmm. So because my thinking uh, is that maybe they're uh, crew members. Who knows? If they're crew members, I can understand a certain there are people degree of, who. Um, there was a time. Um, uh, I don't talk about any job that I have while I have it, but I okay. can talk about past jobs. Okay, and I'm sure I have mentioned before in like in uh, 2008 into 2009, I was a temp at MGM. Yes. Um, and so this would have been about the time that Valkyrie came out, I think. Okay. Um, and Lions for Lambs maybe maybe had just come out. What year was Lions for Lambs? 08? I think that was 07. Okay. So, yeah, Lions for Lambs had been out. But anyway. Um, and there are people who have jobs at MGM who had nothing really at all to do with Valkyrie mm-hmm. who were super excited that it was coming out. Okay. I think people just have a sense of certain people just like – buy into the team sort of nature of their their workplace and I, they, I've seen that I saw that with a manager that I had at Blockbuster who really locked into the the company there which is unfortunate um, so I, I do understand yeah, that yeah that's a that's a you're I, not, the, the, okay all right let me get in my soapbox here oh here we go people of America the oh, people good. who employ you are not your friends they are almost combatants they're adversaries they don't want you to move up. They don't want to pay you anymore. You have to carve it out for yourself. They might to fight your own battle. Okay, so you're again, being, I'm talking you're more being... about working for a big corporation. Okay. If, if you know like the owner of the place, obviously that's a different sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah that was weird. You you had a, a weird liberal and conservative attitude there at the same time. <laughs> you know. It's like, don't trust the man. You know, these big corporations are only out to hurt you. So pull yourself up by, by your bootstraps. Um, so we're all uh, on our own. <laughs> right. Okay. So now we're going vaguely uh, nihilistic. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I didn't mean, I don't mean to be overly cynical, but one way or the other, they were in charge of something having to do with the film. Uh, I don't think they were part of the artistic create or creative side the production side i think they're a part of the uh corporate side of it and they seem to be you know they did seem to have a vested interest in starting a, getting the applause going and maybe maybe they're legitimately enthusiastic but mm-hmm. i feel like not and uh not that they hated it certainly you're a cynic i am kind of a cynic yes yeah. and that's the thing 
you know, we, we talk about, uh, with the exception of Struck by Lightning, which I, w- that movie comes out soon, and I cannot wait to write that review. Um, and so, but as, with, the, with that exception, by and large, I, as time has gone on, I, I tend not to have a great deal of malice towards filmmakers, one or two here and there. Uh, but like, I, I feel like they're, they're art- they are artists trying to get something across. Maybe they don't do it well, or maybe I don't like what they're doing. But that's, that's fine. I will reserve a certain degree of cynicism and anger towards studios. You know, mm-hmm. studios are what burned that forty minutes of Magnificent Ambersons. You know, uh-huh. and uh, <clears throat> so it's and didn't burn that forty minutes of This Is Forty. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, I so when I see stuff like this, I'm like, oh, damn studio, yeah, <laughs> it's you you lackeys, you know, um, but uh, but it was just an interesting story that I wanted to express, and I, part of me was like, do I, I could work this into my review, no, nah, I'm not going to do that, that's not, that's not Tom Hooper's fault. Um, yeah, uh, uh, that's, that's another, I got to write down another possible topic. Okay, um, what is and is not Tom Hooper's fault? Uh, no, can we, okay, as people who can are... We talk? As people who are internet movie critics, we do it both in spoken form here and we write actual reviews. Could we do an episode about, without naming names, about trends in online movie movie criticism that we don't like? Um, Basically, here's my point. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say, now obviously, I'm not above in writing, in writing a review if I think of a turn of phrase or something... <clears throat> or a momentary aside that I think mm-hmm. is humorous. I, I'll throw it in there. Yeah. Um, but if you are not a professionally employed or even an aspiring comedy writer, try not to m- make your movie review chiefly aim for comedy. Uh, it is yeah, okay. maybe my biggest pet peeve in internet movie criticism. People who are trying harder to be funny than to re- to analyze the movie. Okay, so you're not opposed to have, like you said, having an aside and even having a sense of general wit sure, to yeah, to a to review. Um, just like, yeah, you're a you're a critic first, and if you if you can incorporate wit, all the better. But you are not a humor columnist who decided to talk about a movie. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly yes. Quit right. people stop writing movie reviews like there's humor columns. Okay. You're not Dave Barry. You're not Dave Barry. <laughs> <laughs> you're not you're not Irma Bombeck. <laughs> Um, man, I've gone back and I've read some Dave Barry and it's a lot cornier than I remember, but I still love it. I love him. Yeah. Anyway. You read Big Trouble, right? Uh, yeah. I didn't like that as much. Yeah. Yeah. I see what he was trying to do. But I, I yeah, I like his, his columns, uh, even though they're corny. Anyway, Lame is. Okay. I watched it. Were you going to say something about com? No, I was going to say something about the other thing. The other. Our uh, other sponsor? Yes. Well, okay. First off, here's what you do. Put in your com earbuds. Okay. I mean, you should have them in anyway. You're listening to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're not, if you're just sitting at your cubicle listening to us out loud, have some fucking respect for your coworkers. Put in your earbuds. Your tweakedaudio.com slash pretension earbuds. How's it disrespectful to have them hear this awesome show? Look, I don't like people listening to their music too loud. And you know what is the worst? What's that? You work in a cubicle office type setting. Someone gets up and goes to lunch and leaves the music playing on their computer. Mm. Oh, Oh, that, that chaps me. All right. Yeah. At the very least, have respect for your music. Like, do, do you, is it so sure, disposable sure. that you can just walk away, come back, and who cares? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, what, the whole middle part of that Nine Inch Nails album? 
<laughs> uh, he had some good, it's good deep cuts on the fragile. Um, <laughs> I might be talking about myself with that one. Okay, fair enough. Anyway, um, tw- yeah, so tweakedaudio.com slash pretension. We want to thank Bruce. He sent us a little Christmas present, ga- gave, gave us uh, uh, some more e- earbuds. I, I got the uh, I got the wood colored ones that I've coveted for so long. Just because you checked the P.O. box. Look, you got a key. I do have a key. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but no, you, I mean, I, I, I checked the PO box because you are slaving over the website day and night and I, exactly. I want to make sure people know what the sort of distribution of work is here. And I always get pretty much anything you see on the website is, and I get, I get first crack of all the, at all the spoils of running the website. (laughs) I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah. Well. I want those wood. I want those wood earbuds. <laughs> They're mine. Uh, you have to fight me for them. Oh, uh, it's I'll, been a long time coming back. I will give you a case of Sprite and a case of Pepsi for them. <laughs> All right, inside <laughs> joke. Um, Tweetaudio.com/slash/pretension. Uh, professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors. You uh, you get a third off if you go through that slash pretension portal uh, to the website and free shipping. We definitely recommend you do that. Make sure you're, they're snugly in your ear now because Tyler has something to tell you. Okay, indeed. All right, here we go. This is my first time doing this in a while, so uh, bear with me. David, I've got some questions for you here. Oh, I thought I got a break here. No, I'm sorry. This is interactive. All right. Uh, for the first part. <clears throat> David, do you like comics, like comic books and stuff? Uh, some. Okay. What about, what about like film noir and such? Oh, sure. I okay. got uh, Road to Perdition is what you're talking about? For example. I read that one. And you know what? Speaking of Road to Perdition, uh-huh. do you like Irish hitmen? Okay, now this is where it deviates. I, Dressed in pig masks? Look, I just told you I like Road to Perdition. Okay, all right, fair enough. Obviously, I like Irish hitmen. Yes. Um, Not opposed to pig masks. I've seen The Butcher Boy. Sure, yeah. The um, Butcher Boy is a good one. Well, here's what you should do then, David, and you can uh-huh. now take it easy. Uh, head on over to Kickstarter to support a new comic book called Hit. There's an exclamation point in there, so that's what I'm going to do. Hit is the debut comic book from Gentleman Baby Comics, a Tallahassee-based independent comic book publisher. Hit is a comic noir comic. Oh, crime noir, sorry. Is a crime noir comic that pits vicious hitman Connor Connolly, I enjoy that name, against the Irish mafia, and you can be a part of it, David. The Kickstarter campaign to fund Hit is live right now. It sounds like I'm making fun of them now. I apologize. So go to battleshippretension.com and click on the ad to make a donation. Uh, it's on the can, right. It's what they call a skyscraper. I know. I'm, I'm getting there. Okay. Don't worry. Uh, click on uh, the ad to make a donation. You can also get some uh, cool rewards, t-shirts, buttons, stickers. Uh, and let's see. I want to make sure I got this right. A one-of-a-kind opportunity to have your likeness drawn into the comic to be assassinated by our hero. Oh. I like the idea of that. You can even win a trip to San Diego, San Diego Comic-Con to help Gentleman Baby Comics promote their debut comic. I like that quite a bit. That's great. Uh, the goal, now their goal, is only $3,000. So we're going to reach that with our help. No question about it. No so no donation it. is too small. And also, once they reach that, because they're going to be going for 40 days, once they reach that, you can still donate. You, yeah, but I mean, you say no donation is too small, and that's true, obviously. Right. You, you know, you give what you can um, with a cause like this. But um, <clears throat> to get the to get drawn into the comic book or to get the trip to Comic-Con, you don't get that for a 50-cent donation. Right, right. You need to, yeah, come on. Yes. Yeah. You're getting greedy now. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, 
So yeah, go to BattleshipPretension.com and click on the skyscraper ad to contribute. And uh, I've looked at the uh, some of the sample artwork, and I've seen their their little uh, video on the Kickstarter page, and it does look actually very interesting. And uh, and I really hope that they reach their goal. And so if you, the listener, have a few dollars to spare here and there, um, please uh, please help them out. All right, all right. Now I want to talk real quick about Lemmy's Rob again. Okay. Um, because I watched it just uh. Just yesterday. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, I, I found... Now, obviously, there's some very relevant and um, sadly eternally relevant uh, themes about, um, you know... Uh, Loving someone who does not love you. No, I mean, cl- class disparity. Yes. Um, but I also found w- with the bishop, with Jean Valjean, with Javert... Mm-hmm. Uh, even with the, um, well, I, I forget their names, uh, Sacha Baron Cohen and the uh, Thenardiers. Uh, Thenardiers. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people, sometimes for good and sometimes for ill, invoking Christianity to back up their way of life. Or in some cases, in with the bishop and with Valjean, um, transforming their way of life. Yes. Uh, so you see good and bad ways that Christianity is used in great and subtle ways. Mm-hmm. And I found myself thinking of what I know of Victor Hugo, who wrote the novel and that he was an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I-, I wondered to what extent did he write that stuff into the book to make a point And what extent did it just come from who he is as a person? Basically what I was wondering is, are all the themes in this film or in any film really intentional? So let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Yeah, it's it is very interesting because you I mean you talk to almost any uh Christian familiar with uh Les Misérables including my including myself um and there are ma- major Christian themes in general um and I I think that they are also universal themes but they are very specifically Christian uh, mm-hmm. sp- uh the idea for example what separates this is arguable, but in the eyes of some, what separates, um, you know, Christianity from some other religions is the idea of grace and mercy as opposed to merely like a strict adherence to the law. And that's where you get Valjean and Javert. Javert is strict adherence to the law. And this idea of like Christianity being such a, such a shocking and that the idea of grace and forgiveness of people that have been trying to hurt you, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, forgive them for they know not what they do and all that. Um, you know, it's, it's so shocking that it actually kind of goes against our natural impulse. We tend to latch on to things, certain orders, even if it puts a strict, uh, you know, strict rules on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's the ultimate tragedy of Javert is he cannot accept that grace, uh, because it's all, it's very cut and dry. It's very black and white for him. And, uh, and so it's it is fascinating to me when I yes because when I heard that about uh, Victor Hugo is that um, that somebody who uh, maybe he was looking to explore those themes mm-hmm. but he wi- winds up coming coming up against not coming up but just producing what a, one of the most Christian movies I've ever seen. <laughs> well, um, it wasn't a movie when he wrote it. You know, but that's the thing. It wasn't a Christian. It, I didn't think it was a very Christian book or a very Christian play, but as a movie, <laughs> that's a little backpedal there. But uh, but yeah, and then and so I think, but yeah, the Thenar, the um, Thenardiers, like they, 
they invoke uh, certain ideas, but I think that's, but they are so obviously false. Mm-hmm. And what the priest does for Valjean is so obviously tr- heartfelt. And then what Valjean then goes on to do with Javert, um, I, I think it actually comes away being surprisingly pro this thing. Um, yeah. And, uh, and that's why I wonder how I don't know if it was intended. Yeah. And, and so that it, it brought back into my mind, a conversation you and I had had, I guess more than a year ago at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, this will also be somewhat religion based in that, um, a little over a year ago, uh, we all remember it's marked on our calendars in red, uh, Jack and Jill. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Um, the Adam Sandler vehicle came out in theaters and, um, the, pillar of controversy armand white wrote a glowing review of it and Mm -hmm. you and i were talking about his review and how much of his praise for it had to do with the way that the film explores jewish american identity Mm. um and you know jewishness as a religion and jewishness as an identity apart from the religion yes and we were talking about that and 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 you said uh you said, I don't think Adam Sandler intended any of that. Right. And I said, I don't think Armand White cares. Yeah. I don't think that's the point. And um, I wondered if I care too. Because I think it, I, 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 I um, am fascinated by Armand White um, and I read a lot of his reviews. And I find this, you know, I think people call him a contrarian and he certainly, I think, has contrarian tendencies. Yes. But I think there is a, a consistency to his point of view when he writes about films and a, a big thing with him is to take the most ostensibly disposable low culture films Mm -hmm. and find out what they are saying about our time and the people who make them and, and and stuff like that. Even subconsciously. Yes. Almost a set, especially subconsciously. Especially. Yeah. I, I mean, I almost think that, uh, uh, Armand White's reviews, uh, find the intentional themes of movies to be just a uh, middle brow pretentiousness. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's since that conversation specifically with that movie, I mean, you know, it's, it's so easy for all of us, you know, I do it. I, I certainly do it. Uh, it's easy for us to delve into, uh, no, that's not what I want to say. It's, it's easy for us to just dismiss movies that seem so easily dismissed. Mm-hmm. And at the very least, I think we need somebody like Armand White. I probably disagree with him on a regular basis. Um, and I do think that he has contrarian tendencies that he indulges. Um, but I think he's good because he he there's an argument to be made about what comes through, whether a filmmaker wants it to or not, um, and what it speaks to within you know, we, the audience, us, the audience, right? Within us. Yes. The audience. Within us, And so, um, so yeah. And I remember ever since, uh, you and I talked about that, it is, it has kind of fascinated me because, um, you and I have since gone on to discuss the idea of, um, you know, what a filmmaker, what a filmmaker intends and that I don't really care. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, I think my phrasing of it came from that conversation. Like, For example, um, over the break, Jen and I saw um, Anna Karenina, Mm -hmm. and she wanted to look up why Joe Wright directed it the way he did. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a certain, I'm not even sure what you would call it, but there's a, he approaches it from a certain way um, and has a certain, for lack of a better term, conceit. Um, Yeah. 
that uh, that I find that I find fascinating. I find the idea fascinating. I wish he had been more consistent with it, or I wish that I could find more of a rhyme and reason as far as when he chose to adhere to it and when he chose to abandon it. There is one moment where I'm like, hmm, that seems odd. Uh, but the rest of it I, mm-hmm. I, I'm actually okay with. I'm at peace with. Um, but nonetheless... I really uh, wanted to like that movie while I was watching it. And there are things about it I yeah. really like. I was and, expecting not to like it that much, and then I, much to my surprise, loved it. Um, and maybe I love it precisely because my expectations were so low. But um, so, so Jen was... She's like, I want to look up, you know what uh why he did it like that what he was thinking and i said i don't want to know uh-huh. and and i found myself torn because it's like I, I know what i'm gonna say about it i know why i think that what why i think he he did it but at the same time like if he has made it very clear which apparently they do on the on the website for the film why no. they made this choice uh i i found myself torn i'm like well i don't really want to know but it's right there i can get right. it I can get the information right now and you know, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the guy standing in line in Annie hall mm-hmm. talking about what the, fil- what the filmmaker was trying to do. And then the filmmaker's like, you idiot, this is what I was trying to do. Yeah. Um, but at that point I, I opted to not find out. Yeah. Um, at that point, his opinion isn't any more valid than yours. That's what I have to say. Right. It's sort but of is, like but is that con- when, when, when Ridley Scott says that, oh, yeah, Deckard is a replicant. I just say, oh, it says you. Right. It's like you left it open for interpretation yeah. as far as I can tell. Yeah, you don't get to tell me now. You had your chance to tell me whether or not he was a replicant. Now it's up to me to decide. Yeah. And so it's – so I, I do think – and that is a choice that, I, that, that I'm making. And, and that's the thing. If nothing else – that is a major thing that I – I think I, you and I had already talked about the idea, but it's something that that really kind of took root in that discussion of Armand yeah. White. So that well, is something that he ago, has given us. A few weeks ago, we had Robbie, Robbie Pickering on the show, mm-hmm. and he was talking about the motivations for his main character in his movie, and I disagreed with him. <laughs> I, I don't think that's why she did what she did. Yeah. Obviously, he wrote and directed it, but I think I'm just as... Anyway, that's not the point. That's not what we're really talking about here. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about is just the idea that things come to the surface, perhaps, uh, of, a, uh, of, a, of an artist that aren't something that he or she is trying to say. It's just because of who he or she is, it just is present. Uh, you know, I was thinking about... Uh, I was talking about this with, in preparation for the episode, talking about this with my girlfriend. We started talking about the Ramones and how, obviously, the Ramones did songs like Bonzo Goes to Bitburg that were very specifically uh, about, you know, um, about Reagan. I love that song. uh, It's it's one of my favorite Ramones songs. Uh, But then they also have so many songs that are just portraits of a certain era of inner city white poor youth mm-hmm. that um uh in the 70s mm-hmm. you know that they're just singing about their lives but uh it has all these clues as to much like armor white is saying with jack and jill because adam sandler is who he is that he is that he identifies as jewish mm-hmm. um and that that is an important part of him um it just comes, it just is there in his work. Yeah. You know, so I was just thinking about songs like Rockway Beach or, or, uh, uh, what's, what's the one Chinese rock, like songs just about 
um, scraping pleasure from what you can with the money you can Mm -hmm. and having a certain sort of uh, struggle, but also a lack of means allowing you some sort of abandon in life. Yeah. And that comes through, I think, in a lot of the Ramones type songs. I could see that. Anyway. That's just an idea. Just, I'm just giving more of an idea of what I'm trying to get at. Well, and it, you know, it's it's interesting um, because I'm my first and my first instinct is to think in terms of like a filmmaker's personal prejudices, and so of course we arrive at Mel Gibson um, <laughs> because, and, and I don't mean to just because we were talking about you know um, uh, Jack and Jill. Uh, I don't mean to immediately think only in terms of anti-Semitism, but, um, it's worth talking about. It is worth talking about. We've said it. We've said enough positive things about Mel Gibson in this show that we should probably check ourselves by, (laughs) although I don't think I've ever brought up Mel Gibson without pointing out that he's a monster. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're, you're quick to do that. I think he is, uh, I think he's done monstrous things, but as a person is probably so deeply unhappy that he is pitiable and, Uh, and pathetic. But that doesn't that, taking that doesn't mean that like doesn't his, mean sympathetic. Um, yeah. But yes, if if it were all contained within him, yeah. then it's purely pitiable. As it is, it's just like okay, well, something he needs to be punished somehow, right? Like yeah. there are earthly consequences to what he did. So, um, but so we were talking about like um, you know we were talking about uh, Passion of the Christ. That's the big one that that everyone talked about, and I'm sure if you were to ask him at the time um and probably since like did you mean for these jewish characters to be so i don't know what would you what would you call them not necessarily swarthy but just a little well swarthy is not uh, conniving they're a little swarthy is a thing that sounds insulting but it isn't it just describes being like dark and hairy yeah it has taken a a negative (laughs) yeah uh context but um either way they're just they're a bit they're a bit uh, craven and uh and that sort of thing i can't yeah, quite yeah. put my my finger on craven how is actually a good them. word for what i was thinking of but yeah there's a there's a there's a vulgarity yeah a, a grotesque they're, yeah. they're kind of grotesque yeah um and so uh now if you were to ask him is that you know why did you do that i'm sure he would say do what like I'm not even saying these guys are the pure villains of the piece, you know, compared to some of these, you know, Romans and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that's just who it's just clearly it's a, it's a thing that he, I'm sure if you were to ask him now, he'd probably be conflicted because of the way he was raised. Like he doesn't think it's true, but there's something even deeper than what he thinks. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that comes through. Um, and so it's like, it, it really is a, su- a subconscious thing. Like, there is a a narrative going on underneath, and if something lines up with the narrative, you just accept it without even without even questioning it. It just seems like the truth. Well, clearly, this is how these characters are. Obviously, and it's like, uh, well, no, they don't have to be that. <laughs> it's like, but that's how they are. Clearly, and just and so the way he. So I'm sure I'm sure he was just intending it to be like, oh, well, these characters, they are antagonistic to Jesus in the moment. And so that's all they are. Like, that's what he was intending. And then all this other stuff comes along with it. Um, and so I don't know. It's uh, my first thought is prejudice when I when I think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, while, while you were saying that, I was trying to think of other examples in, in Mel Gibson's films, but I guess he's 
pretty much steered clear of Judaism in his in his other films. But Apocalypto does have does ha- have the. I mean, we know that he's a Catholic. Yes. Um. He he's he's some sort of like weird, uh, you know, proto Catholic. <laughs> his his father's like this uh, super Catholic. Yeah, I would uh, say Uber, but I feel like maybe we should steer away from uh, German terms. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in Apocalypto, he does have the temerity to kind of suggest that the Spanish arriving uh, in South America was good for the indigenous peoples. Now I see, I think it's an ambiguous ending. I think it could go that way. It could also say like, these guys are fighting amongst each other. Meanwhile, a much greater threat is coming. That's how I took it first. But it could also be that like, these freaking, but it could also be vaguely condescending that message of like, these guys can't get it together. (laughs) Thank God society showed up. You know, (laughs) that sort of thing. And in, in the, in the, the, the robots coming from the major main ships at the. I guess we're kind of spoiling the end of Apocalypto, but it's anyway. six years old now. Yeah. Seven. Yeah, it's yeah. You, you should have seen it, you jerks. Um, in the robots coming from the big ships, the uh, the priest and the cross are yeah. front and center. Like they're he, right there. He he shows them very deliberately. Yeah, and and I mean, good for him for making it ambiguous because that could be seen as a sign of like, all right, time for us to redeem these lands, mm-hmm. um, or watch out because you think you saw bad stuff before here comes here comes uh yeah the inquisition it's you know, not the, actually the inquisition but um this is getting away from movies but hopefully with the news we had earlier this year snow crash is going to be a movie soon so <laughs> we'll talk about neil stevenson okay because in okay so just a second i'll i'll, follow, I'll lead you through my train of thought second ago, i was talking about uh repeated thing the idea like does this come up in other movies and i and it and also the Jesus thing made me think of something that is, uh, I'm a huge fan of Neil Stevenson. He's one of my favorite writers, mm-hmm. but in snow crash in the diamond age and in the broke cycle, um, they all have, uh, a variation on, uh, a woman, a woman going through essentially like the, uh, death and resurrection thing. Only instead of death and resurrection, it's forceful loss of virginity hmm. and not necessarily like it, it's a, uh, thin line like only one of them is actually a rape mm-hmm. but the other two are still they're not gentle there's some yeah. sort of uh forceful shock to her virginity and then she is sort of born anew hmm. and i think uh, I, as much as i like neil stevenson i've always found that a little a little tricky and and icky uh mm-hmm. the, the, that he on the one hand clearly has respect for women that he in most of his books want like makes them very uh very strong and independent characters and Mm -hmm. and very intelligent characters often the most intelligent characters in in his uh books are are the women um but at the same time he is clearly tying their identity uh to their whatever this like construct of innocence and virginity is Mm -hmm. uh and i don't and that's again because that's such like an icky thing I don't think that if you pointed that out to Neil Stevenson, he would agree with you. Just like I don't think Mel yeah. Gibson would agree. But I, I, I do find that to be a repetitive thing. All right. Are we going to get back to movies now? No, we're going to stay with books for a moment. Okay. Because, all right, everybody, I don't want to get any fucking emails from this. <laughs> all right? Out of curiosity, I have read The Fountainhead. <laughs> okay? From Ayn Rand. 
Okay. I did not want to read Atlas Shrugged because I heard that it was that it was first and foremost just her opinion, but shoved into the voices of, I'll put quotes around characters. Um, and I heard that it was just not very good as a book. I heard the Fountainhead was much better. Um, the only person I've heard say good things about the Fountainhead is that douchey character in Dirty Dancing who wants to. Yeah, and by, I read about that because uh, I haven't seen Dirty Dancing. And I'll say this, that character's not read the Fountainhead. Like, there's no question about it. Um, You've never seen Dirty Dancing? No, I haven't. It's not, it's not good, but it's... Uh, it's kind of a staple of our time. I feel like yeah, maybe I yeah, should I, see it I'm, at some I'm point. Glad, I mean, there's a lot of references, you know. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know that nobody puts baby in a corner. I've heard that, yes. But you don't know about, like, I carried a watermelon. Like that's You told me about that. That's the yes. funniest line in the movie. <laughs> um, and also uh, how adorable it is that every time they're rehearsing and Patrick Swayze tries to run his hand up the like her, her side, once he gets to her armpit, she starts giggling. <laughs> that sounds neat it's it's to me it's an iconic as much as i don't like the movie it's an iconic cinematic image from my youth i guess and i still find it very endearing i guess i guess i should watch it that's the one i've had the time of my life right that's sure yeah. is that dirty dancing yeah. um okay so also uh wayne knight's in it is he yeah he must have been super young i didn't even know he was acting back then uh yeah he's uh he's not in it very much he's like okay. at the beginning he's i think he works at the resort or something okay that's interesting um, it's uh, it's it's essentially the equivalent of um, uh, Jason Alexander being in the Mosquito Coast. Oh, okay. He's All the right. guy who yeah, works yeah. at the hardware store in that one scene. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so yeah, I was I was, and by the way, uh, the Fountainhead is an interesting book that would make a very interesting miniseries if done right. Uh, there are some. There are probably three or four solid, fascinating characters that if you put the right actor in there, it, they'd be amazing. Um, but by and large, it's not that great of a book. Uh, but it held my attention. Um, but, and, and of course, it's, How long did it take you to read? Well, I started it on my Dominican Republic trip. Okay. And I'm 30 pages away from finishing it now. Oh, you haven't finished it yet. Okay. I've not finished it yet. I'm 30 pages away. Um, and so I basically... But I didn't really read it at all in between my Thanksgiving break and my Christmas break. So I guess two weeks is roughly how long it took me to read about 700 pages. Um, I never read anything, and so I tore through it. It's, it's, in, some ca- in some ways, it's a very easy read. In other cases, it is a slog. But um, so, yes, and yes, I was curious about it for political purposes. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, I'm not sorry. Screw you. <laughs> so... Um, but man, there and I had heard about this that Ayn Rand seems to have some kind of weird feeling about females, though okay. she is one, was one. Um, she died; she didn't become a man. That's <laughs> that's why I put it in the past. Um, and so, uh, and there is a there is a a, str- a very strong uh, female lead in in the book, uh, but not so. But there is a rape that takes place of her. Uh-huh. by the male lead a character who is our hero uh-huh. and she at no point during the, it doesn't go into a whole lot of detail but it goes into emotional detail uh not necessarily physical uh she she doesn't want it but she does uh-huh. because and she has like contempt for like weak men but she loves like strong men and this is the strongest man she kn- it, there's some pretty screwed up stuff in there um, that is supposed to be this idea of like, you know, because I mean, she's very, I mean, I was very individualist and that sort of thing. And so really, 
sex is like one of the most vulnerable things you can do with a person. Uh And these are two characters who don't like to be vulnerable. And so the only real way they could ever have sex (laughs) is through rape because Oh man, that is again icky. It is icky, and but if you but if you were to ask her, as many people did, by the way, um, she's like, no, 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 and it's like, yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> that is absolutely what it was, and just because she might have liked this guy beforehand, and though you give these hints that she wanted it, there was never a discussion, and not you know, I can understand sometimes romance is not discussion oriented. I get it, but. Clearly, I believe she does put up a resistance and like right. it is a and it's early in the book, by the way, and it is astounding. Um, and oh it's and it's and it speaks more to who I, I now I've become fascinated, not in a good way with Ayn Rand and like, who, who, who is this crazy, crazy woman? Now, um, this I'll get us back to back to movies. Please do. Um, with talk of misogyny. OK. And uh bringing up someone who was brought up at the very beginning of the show, Mr. Robert Altman. Yeah. I wrote uh, a paper about his misogyny in college. Uh, yeah, noted. Noted misogynist. Whoops. Excuse me. Uh, famous, renowned, world-renowned misogynist. Um, anyway, I'm exaggerating. Yeah. But... Um, it's an easy paper to write. I'll tell you that. I mean, it is... Uh, I think after this, maybe we should try to get to like some positive examples because I feel like we've just talked about talk shit about people, uh, except for Adam Sandler uh, and Armand White. Those are the two people we've defended. Anyway, uh, so uh, one of the reasons that I, uh, maybe the main reason uh, that I get turned off by Nashville is that um, uh, who's the actor who plays the the character I don't like Keith Carradine Keith Carradine yes that um I think I think he's an asshole Mm -hmm. and I think that on the surface Robert Altman knows he's an asshole Mm -hmm. but I think there's a big part of Robert Altman that can't get over how cool he thinks he is for being an asshole particularly an asshole to women and 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 that's just that's just one I mean Nashville is just one example um a lot of his films have uh, annoying. <laughs> well, uh, and that's one of the most fascinating. Shrill women. Yeah, that's one of the most fascinating things about Doctor T and the women. That's, like that that's is the next one. Yeah. That is like the the ultimate example because it is, for all intents and purposes, a chick flick. I don't like the term, but you know, we all know what we mean when it's like, oh, a, a, rom- a seemingly romantic comedy. Starring Richard Gere, we all know what this is going to be. And then you see that, and it's Dr. T and the women. The shrill, <laughs> annoying, and by the way, they're all blonde, which means they're all basically the same. Except <laughs> uh, Liv Tyler, who I believe is a lesbian in the film, correct? I haven't seen it in a long time. It's been a while since. Uh, you and I saw it together, and I haven't seen it since. Is that right? Did we see it together? Yeah. That we saw it in right. Springfield. And so, um, so yeah, it's... Uh, I used to always know that. Like, I used to be able to pinpoint exactly where and when I saw a movie. I can't I, do it like I used to. Yeah. But uh, it used to be a fun parlor game that you and I played. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, now in Nashville, I do. I, I think that I'd be inclined to agree with you were it not for how much time we're allowed to spend with the Lily Tomlin character and, uh, and, and how through her and her eventual rejection of this character, it is kind of viewed as a comeuppance and we are very much on her side over his. And again, I think that's on the surface, but I think... Uh, un- underneath it it just creeps through that he it's sort of like the 
Tyler Durden thing. Like, it, it, not that Robert Altman made made Fight Club. David Fincher made Fight Club. Mm-hmm. So, not, no angry emails. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, uh, in the end, it does come out right. But it, that doesn't make up for all the times leading up to it that Keith Carradine slash Brad Pitt was supposed to be cool. Uh, that's possible. Although at the same time, I mean, we do see like, it's, it's hard to explain because Robert Altman does tend to embrace the contradictory nature of his characters. Like you can be cool. And then within, you know, a split second, he, and by like, there's a scene in Nashville where Keith Carradine and his two bandmates are singing a song at a small club and then we get, you know, we cut to some, you know, somewhere else in the city. And when we cut back, the two band members are storming off stage because he's <laughs> pissed them off. We don't even see what happened. And then he goes into like his iconic song of the film. And it's a great, it's a really well done song. And he's singing right to Lily Tomlin. It's a, it's a very powerful moment right after he's been an asshole. And then he goes and he's an asshole to Lily Tomlin. And I feel like because it's, It'd be too easy to say that he condemns everything about Keith Carradine or he loves everything about Keith Carradine. It's like it's one of the things that I that I love about the film is that no character can be explained as easily as as that. So okay, well then I will counter with examples from Mash. Oh no question, <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly what I'm talking about. There are a couple of louses. Um, they are uh, uh, callow, and um, he r- romanticizes their ironic. Uh, apathetic, uh, uncaring, self-destructive ways, mm-hmm. and um, pranks such as the sexual humiliation of Hot Lips Hula Hula in front yeah. of the entire camp are treated as funny. Yeah, and it's and that's the thing is it's it's unfortunate because he's I'm not I'm not a huge fan of Mash myself, but I I love s- the TV show. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the movie either. Uh, I haven't seen book, the movie okay. in a long time, and maybe I should rewatch it. But read uh, the book. What was that? You read the book. Eh, don't tell me what to do. I'm busy reading my uh, crazy objectivist uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, faux liber- literature. Yeah, mash the book is about 130 pages. <laughs> you can read it almost by accident. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and so yeah, with that one, it's it's interesting because I'm sure. Okay, so now we get to intentions. Now, admittedly, we're still kind of bashing uh-huh. somebody. But a filmmaker that that, that I like, so uh, I don't condemn him in general. Um, I'm sure if you were to ask him, he was being an- he'd say he was being anti-establishment because that's what he does. He was <laughs> making an anti-war war film. Um, but the fact that he chose, you know, and they make fun of Robert Duvall's character a little bit. Frank, what's his name? He was in the show as well. Burns. Yeah, Frank Burns. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that was Robert Duvall's character. I think they took another. They took two characters from the movie and combine them into one character for the show called Frank Burns. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, but I think it was Robert Duvall. Anyway, so they make fun of him as well. But of course, there's not, you know, there's not as much fun in the sexual humiliation of a man. And it's right. like, well, why not? And it's, and that's, that's the narrative. That's the idea. It's just, it's just like, clearly he just thought that, well, no, this would be funnier. This uh-huh. would be, this, you know, it's like, oh, this exposed woman, this, uh, this, uptight shrill holier than thou woman and now she's been exposed for everyone to see you know yeah. and is, isn't that hilarious it's like well uh, you could have done it with this guy y- yeah but it's funnier with a woman like, it just <laughs> yeah. he just accepts it and he and i'm sure he would have just said well it's i'm being th- she represents the establishment and i'm being anti-establishment 
Yeah. There's a lot of that crazy, uh, that hippie stuff, man. And that beat, that beatnik stuff too. Like, oh man, they thought they were, they thought they were so progressive, but like just women not, not treated that well. Yeah. It just still so strict with the gender roles. And that's the thing is that's, you know, it's the, it's the idea of like, uh, you know, you fight against you fight against culture on the surface, not realizing just how much you have ingested mm-hmm. it. And we, and I'm sure we all have it. You know, um, I'm sure we all have certain things that we don't like or we do like that kind of run counter to what people what is generally accepted. But even in the way that we do it, we're sort of taking it on culture's terms mm-hmm. rather than our own. Um, <clears throat> now. Uh, I, I want to. We should wrap up pretty soon, but I, I do want to try and get back to some positive. Okay. Well, let me say one stuff. more negative. Okay. Um, and I've, I'm sure I've said it on the show before. Um, and this is actually one of the things that kept me from watch that stopped me from watching commentaries or listening to commentaries with with film is uh, the Omen. You watch that uh, commentary with, with Richard Donner. He seems like a super nice guy, and uh, and it's and it is what he has to say is very interesting about some of the choices that he that he makes uh whether it be to i'm not going to kill a fish for the sake of a film or you know people are going to throw their hands up over their faces for about three seconds then they're going to peek out from their fingers and there's there's david warner's head so i made it six seconds and not three and so um you know it it is interesting that while that works for the people who do hide their hide behind their for those of us who don't hide our eyes yeah it becomes comical that it goes on so <laughs> yes, long yes it's not it an does. entirely successful ploy that david warner's head spinning for half a minute thing yeah well and also like there's almost no blood so it just looks <laughs> like a prop head yeah. anyway um but in the in the uh, commentary he does comment that what he was what he wanted to do is he wanted it to seem like maybe gregory peck was going a little crazy but also giving in to the power of suggestion that like these ah these crazy religious zealots are putting all these ideas in his head and he's just going along and if and as you continue watching the film you actually hear richard donner sort of sort of judging the gregory peck character and just and actually talking to him and saying like that's not the case buddy you're not gonna you know and being like that and part of me is like you have failed if your job was if you saw it as your job to make it seem like this guy was only that that he was giving into this weird kind of uh religious uh superstition and stuff but in fact it, it's just a regular kid if that was your goal you have failed immensely like you have you have stacked the deck so much that you that now we are totally on board with Gregory Peck and not at all on board with you like your intention is totally irrelevant at that point and it's uh, I'm, I'm, I sound like I'm angry, but it's an example of like you can get so an artist can get so close to what they're trying to do mm-hmm. that they fail to recognize they have done exactly the opposite. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, I I want so let's let's about, go positive. What do you got for me? Well, I you know what I have one that's maybe I don't know if it's positive, just an observation. Okay, that um, the type of people who become uh, big famous directors. Um, like a, like a Hitchcock or mm-hmm. a David Fincher, aforementioned David Fincher, um, tend to be perfectionists and obsessives yeah. and tend to either consciously or subconsciously 
make movies about obsessive perfectionists or even who are probably assholes yeah or even compulsive people like john doe and seven yeah you know um and uh i also think of you know we mentioned the mosquito coast so that's in my mind but Mm -hmm. um you know uh peter weir makes you know makes big movies about big things and and obviously harrison ford's character in the mosquito coast is definitely an obsessive Mm -hmm. um and you could see Obviously, you could see the director echoed in Ed Harris's character in The Truman Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what more I have to say about that, but it just commenting on the fact that directors tend to make movies about people who are obsessed with oh, things. Well, and also, I mean, and this is... I was thinking about inc- incorporating like uh, like a Roman Polanski or an Orson Welles who tended to return to the same things over and over again. But I feel like, well, that was probably conscious. Or was it? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, Orson Welles, if you read in- any interview with him, um, he does seem a little unaware of what he's doing, but he also was notoriously uh, secretive yeah. while appearing not to be. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, it could be that. But like just... Wells returning over and over again to this idea of, you know, just the a guy dissatisfied with all the th- who achieves all the things that everyone says will make you happy and just mm-hmm. totally dissatisfied by it, um, and and just a deep deep self loathing, um, which I think you know speaks again to Wells himself, and then Polanski over and over again returning to uh, themes of one man against the world or more specifically the world against one man Mm -hmm. just uh, you know everything from chinatown to oliver twist is all about that like people uh, and a single individual whose fate lies in the hands of people more powerful than than him or herself and so now given (laughs) given polanski's personal history whether it be you know living through you know the holocaust but losing relatives and so feeling very alone and losing allies that and then, you know, being married to, he was married to Sharon Tate, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Being married to somebody who there were unspeakably evil forces working against them without their knowledge. Mm-hmm. And then eventually making, I was doing a terrible thing. Yeah. Um, and then feeling like the world was against you for uh, admittedly a, probably a good reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, maybe I'm hemming and hawing a little bit, uh, a very good reason. Yeah. And so, uh, <clears throat> You know, he just seems to be drawn to that, and maybe that's something he's consciously doing. I don't know. Um, I think he cannot help himself. I think this is like this really resonates with him for a reason, and so whether he's aware of it or not, and and I think you know that speaks to other subconscious things because intention can also because when we talk about intention versus execution we're talking about the subconscious manifesting itself in ways that uh, an artist might not be consciously aware of and so i mean that can extend to the audience we talk about this with subjectivity like i think through a mixture of our genetic makeup and the way we were raised and the experiences we've had and the things we purposely expose ourselves to i think uh we are predisposed to uh, liking certain types of movies over others that's not to say that we can't like all kinds but if you look at a you know for a long time and probably even now if you look at my you know my 10 favorite movies of all time you will notice a pretty a pretty dark view of humanity but as as i have 
changed maybe a little bit as a person. You know, uh, a very emotionally cold movie like Citizen Kane gives way to what I consider to be a very humanistic, uh, truthful movie like Nashville. Um, cause I think I've, I've changed as a person. That's neither here nor there. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I want to wrap up by talking about, we, we've been talking so much about specific directors. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about another, another thing. Um, and we won't want to spend too long on this cause it's kind of self-evident, but, um, genres and trends in genres often say a lot about the time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, obviously, um, the noir film came out of um, this sort of, I guess, post-depression uh, uh, America, right? And, po- and, and post-depression, post-war. and then like post-war, really like but, I mean, solidified. Started, yeah, and, and just um, the sense that okay, we're out of the depression, or okay, we won the war, or okay, things. America's great now, yeah. But what does that mean? And I, well, where do I find it? I don't see it, and, yeah. And, uh, and and it has all these, you know, the success of capitalism, nat- you know, necessarily has a lot of castoffs. A, a lot of people have to lose for people to win in capitalism. That's just the way it works. <laughs> um, uh, I suppose so. In a, in a competitive system, not everyone can win. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not necessarily making a judgment call okay. about that i'm just it's just an observation uh but also you see other things you know um uh like people talk about there's a there's a there's a version of invasion invasion of the body snatchers for every generation you know and it's the same general story but what we're paranoid what it's commenting on mm-hmm. is different things you know and i've never seen any version of invasion of the body snatchers i'd like to watch seen- all of them well, because I recently it, rewatched the, the original. Original, it's so great. As with Kevin McCarthy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How uh, appropriate. And then I've I've never seen the seventy eight version with Donald Sutherland. I think that's right. Okay. And then there's the early nineties one that Abel Ferrara made that I've never also never seen. Is that one with Christopher Reeve? It might be. I don't I, know. I haven't seen it. That might be a different thing. And then there's the invasion. Yeah. Which I worked on, but never saw. Oh, okay. I was a PA. Uh, I was a day-playing PA. I was on yeah. one or two days on that. And I worked uh, at the post-production house that was doing the special features on that DVD. Um, anyway. I also never saw it. Uh, but uh, anyway, I mean, obviously there's a difference between, you know, um, I, I still think the original is the most sort of juicy in this uh, in this regard, because on the one hand, you could say it's paranoia about communism, or it's paranoia about people ratting on each other or you yeah. know the the witch hunts yeah um and i think it's you know knowing the politics of some of the people involved uh it's the latter it was a it's an mm. anti-mccarthyism movie but that could just as easily have been read as an anti-soviet oh, yeah. movie very much yeah very much so and that's kind of the that's kind of the beauty of that movie having yeah. not seen it is yeah. like whatever you choose to bring to it or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever you bring to it, whether you choose it or not, like that's what the movie can be. Um, and of course zombie movies, you know, can it be everything from, um, you know, what, uh, the way that consumer culture is deadening us or, or you know, making us slaves in, in, in the original Dawn of the Dead to what you see more often with like, especially with things like 28 days later, <laughs> which I know, not a zombie movie. I know. 
No angry emails, please. <clears throat> it's not a Walking Dead movie. If you go with a, a, diff- a stricter definition of the word zombie, then it can work. Okay. Anyway. I know they're infected. They're not dead. That's all. I just want to make sure everyone knows that I know that. But, um, you know, that, uh, you know, we've got these uh, uh, epidemics of Ebola or bird, you know, avian flu or Mm -hmm. H1N1 or all these things that are that are uh, scaring us in our increasingly smaller global community. Global village is making these things uh, more transmutable, transmittable. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um, And. That's that's scary. That's why we get things like uh, Twenty Days Later or Contagion, which is, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, a, a version of a horror film. Um, again, a film I really wanted to like and didn't. Uh, and then uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up is maybe a film that is aware of its themes, but isn't aware that it's part of a larger tapestry because you mm-hmm. need the distance. Because uh, like, there's no doubt that death wish is about someone who's scared of uh, you know who's sick of the state that the modern or the modern of the 1980s american city is in well it's also a revenge tale like i mean he loses right, 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 right. you know family yes. members um but it, you have to step back to see just how many 80s action movies and horror movies and those kind of things had it, this this fear this dread of the city Oh, and I was, uh, you and I, before the show, we were talking about the movie Arthur, which, uh, not the, not the new one, the, uh, the 1981 version directed by, I do not recall. Okay. Um, but starring Dudley Moore and John Gilgood and, and just, a and Liza Minnelli, just a, a great movie, a very funny. And I'm sure if you were, and it's basically about a multimillionaire who stands to lose his money mm-hmm. and and it's you know Dudley Moore who I think I think I'm at just the I'm at just the right age that I don't think I really had an appreciation for him as a comedic actor like I think if I was 4 or 5 years older I might still kind of know who he was but as it was I kind of knew him mostly from uh Maurice LaMarche's impression of him on uh on uh, the critic yeah but um but man Arthur is a, is amazing and and it's hilarious and I'm sure if we were to ask the you you never know like i'm sure everybody involved just thought they were making a really good comedy and they were but arthur's lifestyle is so excessive and of course it came out in 81 where although admittedly the economy was still not doing great at the time it was still kind of uh still the recovery had not yet happened uh but but that makes it all the more if, if so many people are still suffering yeah, that makes this picture of opulence more. That's why we get arbitrage, arbitrage. I don't know. How you, yeah, I, it's frustrating. It's a crazy name for a movie. It's a good movie though. <laughs> That's why you get this this year. You know, yeah. things aren't great in our econ- economy. This is the best time to take a harsh look at someone for whom things are essentially going very well. But that, but uh, arbitrage. Yeah, Ar- Arby's triage. That's the one. Uh, that is a conscious look at that. Arthur, and by the way, we're always rooting for him to get his money. Uh, you know, like uh. we don't, we never don't want him to have it. There, there is the possibility at the end, spoilers, that he will not get his money and he's choosing love over money. But then, oh, thank God. Uh, his uh, grandmother, played by somebody notable who I cannot recall at the moment, um, but his grandmother decides oh. to. 
Go on. Decides like the movie. Yeah, but decides like you know what? I'm not going to stand in the way of true love. Here's your seven hundred and fifty million dollars. And uh-huh. here's the thing: I'm on Arthur's side. I like him a lot. Like, but can you imagine? Can you imagine a movie made right now in which a almost billionaire uh-huh. is treated as one hundred percent sympathetic all the time? You love him. Yeah, it's it's. I, I don't think it happens. Yeah, I, I will. I think that's a good sign. I think that's a good thing that we're a little more. Well, I'm sorry. Hang on. Who? Bruce Wayne. You know what? I'm totally <laughs> wrong. I'm sorry. <clears throat> All right. You just reminded me of the movie Overboard, which um, I've, ne- I've never seen. Which also, okay, spoilers for the end of Overboard. Goldie Hawn chooses Kurt Russell over Edward Herman, chooses love over money, and then, but she has her memory back and she remembers, oh, yeah everything's in my name so i get you kurt russell and all the money and edward herman gets yeah. nothing and it does speak to the idea of of the of the 80s which is like you know and having become fascinated by politics like the 80s by some people is really romanticized and economically like things were going kind of okay uh for most people, not everybody, but at the same time, you look at like the the price that it ex- like. There's a reason cocaine was the big drug because it's the <laughs> one that made you go really fast and get the most done, and uh, and like it probably ex- not probably I'm sure it exacted a, a price on the human soul that like did, excess uh, like you can't these characters can't not have money. Yeah, you know, uh, you know what? And I think you do see it today actually with things like Gossip Girl. Um, mm. And I, but I, I think I don't know if it is necessarily a sign of the times, maybe just to some extent. But I also, if I can put my conspiracy theory hat on, you know, um, the studios that make movies are owned by corporations who need, uh, uh, who depend on the encouragement of consumption, and maybe that's why these themes find their way into movies. And mm-hmm. you know, and and maybe and some of that is even subconscious. Like uh, a movie's easier to finance if you have product placement. Yeah. Um, but you're, you know, saying something by featuring that featuring a product in, in a movie. Anyway, <clears throat> I felt like I was going to say something else. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, speaking of recession, late seventies uh, recession, uh, late seventies, early eighties, you get um, you get your Caddyshacks, you get your Animal Houses, you get your Revenge of the Nerds. A lot of a lot of uh, uh, snobs versus slobs uh, stories. Same same general thing. Yeah. I think it's sort of a pro pro blue collar well and it's and it goes you know it's late 70s and so people are tired of nixon and his silent majority of like kind of which is still i'm sure he he was kind of speaking of like uh you know the the middle class and just kind of the people that go to work and they don't protest or anything like that but nonetheless kind of a certain type of uh establishment i mean there's nothing more establishment than richard nixon and then of course the fact that jimmy uh, Carter, who was not very establishment at all, like the like the the same thing that got him elected mm-hmm. is the same thing that got Animal House made and loved, you know, and just this idea of like ah screw Dean Wormer, uh-huh. you know Dean Nixon, uh, like yeah. it's we, we're gonna go with uh, Bluto and uh, and uh, Jimmy, yeah. So <laughs> I think that's a good place to wrap up. Actually, I hope so. I feel like you know whenever we talk about a, a theme like this, it's. I feel like we kind of go off in, in all directions. and uh, Hey, we're not writing a paper on it here. Fair enough. This is uh, a topic that came up at a party, is the premise here. And you and I, being the film nerds at the party, are off in the corner, not... Talking to anybody else. Yes. Yeah. 
Fair enough. That essentially was the my idea, at least behind this podcast five years ago. So. Yeah, and uh, I think I think we have stayed true to that, and it's amazing how many people do not get it, uh, <laughs> even to this day. That's fine. Yeah. Um, by the way, I'm going to start a new podcast. It's called the um, uh, iTunes Review Podcast, and it's going to be an hour a week of me asking people to review my show on iTunes and reading reviews on iTunes. Oh, man. That's, that's, that's all it's going to be, because that's what... Ha- I feel like half the podcasts I listen to are going in that direction anyway, so I'm just going to try and get out in front of the pack and just do the all, my podcast has no reason to exist other than to beg people to write reviews on iTunes. I, I don't check as much as I, as much as I used to, um, but like at this point, it's just, I've, I've, I've read so many wonderful reviews like people are, are are incredibly nice to us and that's great and then every once in a while you get someone who wow it is amazing <laughs> it like they were consciously trying not to get the show and i don't think there's even much to get and just like but you know those are the ones my i i i can't wait to read okay fair enough i, I don't know I'm why not i they, i'm not saying they make me mad i'm just saying like at this point like uh, the idea of the itunes review mm-hmm. again i the, the positive ones i'm very appreciative of but um but when this guy has just as much of a an iTunes vote as the person who totally gets us, <laughs> it's like okay, this whole process is corrupt. <laughs> uh, do you know when I like sometimes uh, I'll be out with uh, my girlfriend or friends or, or family or whatever, looking for a place to eat in the neighborhood. I'll pull out my iPhone, get on my Yelp app, mm-hmm. see what's in, see what's near that has a good rating. We'll decide on a place, and then I will immediately scroll through looking for all the one-star reviews even if the place has four and a half stars oh. i want to see what people are saying and my favorite <clears throat> i was in st louis um for christmas and i was looking up we didn't end up going but there was a place that i liked on the few occasions i got to go there it's rather expensive um at least by my by you know my standards growing up uh called annie guns and I was looking up at you know, four and a half review stars or so on Yelp, and I was looking at the one star reviews. And one of them, this woman <laughs> said, uh, basically her main complaint was that they she tried to order a Bacardi Lima Lyman. Mm. I, I don't know lime. I don't know if it's a lime lemon Bacardi or whatever. And then her. Uh, this is the craziest drink you've ever heard. Okay. Her daughter tried to order a grape vodka and Diet Coke. <laughs> they didn't have these things. They didn't have Bacardi Limon and grape vodka. And the woman's review actually said, this is one of the point where I almost Ma'am, are if, you a secret shopper trying to <laughs> trick me? I almost wonder if this was a joke review because she said, I don't know why we didn't just get up right then and go to a restaurant that has common things like that. <laughs> did this woman go on to try to build the largest house in america because they kind of have that quality to them yeah yeah (laughs) but i mean even if they had it grape vodka and diet coke that is disgusting now did she want them mixed together because maybe she just wanted the two things separately (laughs) and mix them in her mouth yeah oh my gosh maybe that's the way they do things yelp reviews are fun because jen you know jen has her own business and Mm -hmm. uh and she's on you know she's on yelp and i think i think she's gotten mostly positive things but what's fascinating there's somebody who gave her a positive review without having actually booked her like gave her a great uh-huh. review and it, and and was in the process of booking her 
and uh, but just said like oh and and it's one thing it's like oh i'm in the process of booking her right now uh you know and she's being very accommodating it's like okay that's fine but that's not the review it was oh this is such wonderful stuff and it's like that's wow that's that's really great wait a second what if i let this woman down like it, <laughs> maybe it, that's it, why she did it I guess so. Yeah. yeah, you feel obligated to her. Yeah, yeah. Maybe give her a discount. Um, can I tell you before we sign off? Another of my favorite Yelp things. Sure. Uh, here in I, I want to say it's in like I don't know, uh, like Reseda, maybe Van Nuys. Mm-hmm. There's there's a bar here called uh, I think it's called Springbox, and it's a South African themed bar. Oh yes, owned I've, by South Africans. I've been there. Uh, Garen Cockrell of Pop Culture Beast. I used to go and do uh, trivia with him oh, uh, okay. every once in a while there. Um, read their reviews on Yelp because the owner of Spring... And I love... Uh, I, 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 I like the bar and I love this guy because he has tendency to respond to people's one-star reviews. <laughs> and one guy complained that... Um, I don't know, something like they didn't stay open right until 2 a.m. wherever last call was mm-hmm. or whatever. And, uh, um, and the guy wrote back, like the guy who owned the bar owns the bar wrote back like, uh, uh, you know, something like it was very classy of you to loudly try to stay past closing time and then grab one of our waitresses or whatever. And he says, if you're ever in the neighborhood again, why don't you come by and I can adjust your attitude for you. <laughs> <laughs> and then be like, I am on board with Springbox now <laughs> oh, because that is such a great turn of phrase. <laughs> oh, that's right. delightful. You can find us at battleshippretension.com. You can email us at david at battleshippretension.com or tyler at battleshippretension.com. Follow me on Twitter at The Pretension. Follow Tyler on Twitter at More Lessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is at morethanonelesson.com or in iTunes. And you can find my other podcast whenever I do it at uh, previouslyonshow.com. Now, Tyler, do you still um, – I feel like we're clear on the po- on the podcast about it, mm-hmm. but do you still have people uh, – is it still confusing to people that – at the pretension is just me. I don't think so. But you know what? At the same time, I don't know. I don't ask strangers. Right. You know, all, right. all of my friends seem to know that it's you. Um, right. And I, 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 I tweeted a thing about how much I like Les Miserables mm-hmm. and our website carries a negative review of yeah, Les yeah. Miserables by you. So I'm wondering if that's weird. I, th- I think we do a pretty good job of it. What I will say though, is this listeners, at the pretension is David's Twitter. If you want mine, it's at more lessons. So like, if you like both of us, you can follow me too. Yeah. At more lessons. Yeah. And, uh, cause as of right now, how many Twitter followers do you and ostensibly we have? <laughs> I think it's like 1620. Okay. I've got about 600. Okay. Which is hey, great for my little my little uh, Christian podcast uh-huh. over here, but for Battleship Pretension, those aren't oh, good numbers. We should be even. We should be even. Yeah. I have to assume people, there's how I take it. I'm just dead weight. <laughs> All right. I got to get off this show. No, people I think like it's you that more. People are following me because. I, and you know what? It, uh, just to, to clarify, it came about naturally. I had, I briefly had my own twi- Twitter yes. at DM Backs. I don't even know if it still is there. I haven't done anything with it in maybe four years. Um, and uh, then I started at the pretension to mm-hmm. promote that pretension stuff. 
and then it just sort of yeah it became and i'm i'm happy with that i'm perfectly uh-huh. fine with that you know i'm glad that we have it because if it was left to me we wouldn't have nearly as many tweets as we do like you tweet much you tweet in a in a way that is appropriate for having a website that you want people to <laughs> to, to visit yeah so all right so that's all cleared up everyone follow up more lessons and thank you all for listening we'll get you next time bye bye This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.